welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert, Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Susan E. Provenzano, William Trumbull Professor of Practice at Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. We will discuss her article, Can Speech Act Theory Save Notice Pleading, which will be published in the Indiana Law Journal. So welcome to the show, or rather, welcome back to the show, Sue. Thank you, Brian. I'm very happy to be here again. Yeah, it was the last interview was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm really interested to talk to you about this new paper, which is going in a, a, a new direction, which is near and dear to me, given that not only was I a civil procedure professor for quite some time, but I also studied uh, the philosophy of language with John Searle as an undergraduate at Berkeley. So a lot of the stuff you're talking about was really familiar to me. I'm guessing it might not be as familiar to some listeners. So we'll spend some time explaining some of the background perhaps to them. Sure. And, and I wonder if you could start by just kind of situating listeners in the context of understanding exactly what notice pleading is. In other words, how does notice pleading work, at least in theory? What was it kind of for? And what's the basis for thinking about pleading as a form of notice pleading? Certainly. So the federal rules of civil procedure have set up a system that helps uh, parties in courts figure out what it is that they need to say to get in court and stay in court. Um, and when the federal rules of civil procedure were adopted back in 1938, um, the thinking behind that was to make it fairly easy uh, for a, a plaintiff to file a complaint um, and for that complaint to move forward and permit the plaintiff access to information from the other side. Um, the FRCP, which is my abbreviated version of the rules, um, was a reaction to previous systems that were much more stringent in what they required uh, plaintiffs to do and say in order to be able to stay in court. Before these rules, there was something called code pleading. And plaintiffs had to be really, really specific. And there were certain ways that they had to phrase things and construct sentences and words that they had to use. And if they didn't do that correctly, their complaint would be dismissed and they would have no opportunity to develop the merits of their case. So when the rules were enacted, it was in large part a response to that. So notice pleading, as conceived by the federal rules of civil procedure, is based on the concept that the plaintiff just has to let the defendant know what he or she is being accused of. You know, what did you do wrong? Um, and if the defendant can grasp that uh, from the complaint and can actually formulate some kind of response, whether it's to try to dismiss the complaint or whether it is I'm going to admit or deny certain things, that's really what it's for. And of course, it's for the court too. The court has to have a sense of you know, what kind of case am I going to be managing and judging here. Um, but the thinking was not necessarily for the plaintiff to put inside the complaint information that would uh, show what whether the case was going to be a good case, a bad case, that is a weak case or a strong case. That was never really the thinking of notice pleading. It's really an informational uh, approach in which the complaint was seen as the beginning of a conversation uh, between the complaint uh, between the plaintiff and the defendant. And from there, uh, the litigation would proceed. And, you know, unless the defendant could had no idea what he was being accused of, um, the, you know, typically the suit would move forward um, and eventually the parties would exchange information through discovery. So maybe you could talk a little bit more specifically 
about what notice pleading looked like in practice historically, because, uh, you know, spoiler alert, it changed quite a bit in, in recent history. But the sort of the paradigmatic form of notice pleading, what did it look like? I mean, if a plaintiff wanted to bring a, a complaint and not have it kicked out of court, what what kinds of things would they need to do or say specifically in order to kind of plead a valid complaint? And, and I guess by, by contrast, like what kind of deficiencies would lead to a complaint not being sufficient? Sure. So um, the, I think the best example of a paradigmatic complaint was something that used to be in an appendix to the rules of civil procedure. Um, it, it was a form and it, it's been numbered in different ways over time. But the form was one for negligence pleading. And these forms were appended to the rules and heralded as, you know, examples that lawyers could follow under this new notice pleading system. So this particular form had uh, sentences in it to the effect of defendant drove his car negligently against me and caused me the following injuries on the following date. And so that's not a lot of information. Um, you as the defendant get that and you say, oh, okay, this is about a car accident and the plaintiff is saying that I drove in a manner that was careless, but I don't know if the plaintiff thinks I was on my phone um, texting or whether I was changing the radio station um, or whether I was speeding and swerving. I, I don't know which sort of bad driving I'm being accused of. Um, but that was okay because the defendant had at least a sense that careless driving was the issue. Um, it was not some other kind of negligence involving some other kind of instrumentality. Um, and the theory was clearly negligence. It wasn't breach of contract. It wasn't some other legal theory. So, you know, according to that paradigmatic example, that would be enough under notice pleading. And there wasn't any sort of requirement about getting really specific about exactly what uh, you know, facts constituted uh, the negligence. In terms of things that would not be sufficient, um, there's also a pleading problem in which a plaintiff might plead something that the law just doesn't recognize. Uh, this is not an example from the case law, but an example I like to give my students is uh, a complaint that alleges that the professor uh, continuously gives the students dirty looks. Um, and while that's incredibly unpleasant, there's no anti-dirty look law. And so, you know, under notice pleading, if you didn't have um, a law that covered the harm, you know, that would be insufficient. And yet a third type of legal insufficiency could arise under notice pleading if the plaintiff pled a harm that was recognized by the law, but left out a big chunk of information that was necessary to satisfy an element. So this currently um, and previously happened a lot with discrimination cases as an example. So a plaintiff in a sex discrimination case might plead, I am a woman, I was denied a promotion, and a man was given a promotion instead. And that pleads part of a discrimination claim. Those you know, Some elements are there and covered by those allegations. But importantly, the allegation of intent uh, there's nothing really covering that. Um, one could certainly see a man being given a position over a woman in the absence of discriminatory intent. So there would have to be something in there that would suggest sex was the reason that the man got the promotion. It wouldn't have to be very much. Uh, it might just be an allegation that the woman had better qualifications than the man. But what was still not required 
is that the woman would not have to identify which qualifications that she had that were better. Um, she could simply say, and I was more qualified. And that would still be sufficient under notice pleading. So just to sum up, as I understand it, then under the historical form of notice pleading, as long as the plaintiff pleads facts that are facially sufficient to satisfy all of the elements of a cause of action, those facts pleaded have to be accepted as true facts and the complaint is going to satisfy the pleading requirements. But if they fail to plead any facts that would satisfy some element, then it wouldn't? That is correct. You've got it right. So this this standard existed for a really long time, for you know, many decades, but it's it's relatively recently it it's changed, or at least arguably changed, or the Supreme Court has intervened in into these pleading standards in a way that people perceive as a pretty fundamental change. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what happened and why people think it's such a major shift in how the Supreme Court is telling us to think about the standards for notice pleading. Yes. In the late 2000s, 2007 and 2009, the Supreme Court issued two decisions. And you're correct, Brian, a lot of people saw them as a total sea change in the way that pleading worked. Um, Those decisions were Bell Atlantic versus Twombly and Ashcroft versus Iqbal. And for the first time in both of those cases, the court's Um, used the words notice pleading, but they sort of, they did it more as lip service. And instead, the focal point of the court's analysis, especially in the second case, which was Iqbal, was this concept of plausibility pleading. And that put a different gloss on what pleading was really about. Before that, with notice pleading, it was about information. Um, Do I, as the defendant, have the basic information I need to prepare for my case and figure out how to respond? Do I, as the court, have the information I need to understand what sort of uh, cause of action or what sort of litigation I'm going to be presiding over? With the plausibility standard, though, what the court started to seem to be asking is for complaints to foretell their merits. Uh, That is, for a complaint to signal to the court and to the defendant whether the case was going to be one that was meritorious. And that, again, was not only a really big difference from this sort of informational focus, um, it was also a very different norm than the norm that was driving notice pleading. Notice pleading was about opening the the doors of the courtroom wide to plaintiffs um, and giving them the benefit of the doubt and not requiring them to be all that specific. But under the plausibility standard, which I'll explain in a minute, um, it was seen as and continues to be seen as something that asked the plaintiffs to say a whole lot more. Um, So the way that the plausibility standard works is that there are now two steps um, to figuring out whether the plaintiff has said enough um, to signal that the case is meritorious. The first step is something that used to be a little that that was somewhat part of notice pleading, but has but the contours have shifted. Um, in the first step, the court does this sorting between sentences in a complaint that are fact specific and sentences in a complaint that are conclusory. Um, and back in the day of notice pleading, that distinction was seen as we'll look at allegations that are factual and we'll take them as true. 
But the allegations that talk about how the defendant violated the law, you know, and by terminating the plaintiff, um, the defendant violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You know, that, that's a sentence that has to be in a discrimination complaint. And of course, back in notice pleading, courts would not take that as true. They would say, you got you to gotta prove that. We're not going to let that help you over the, uh, the hump of, you know, pleading an adequate complaint. Uh, but factual allegations were taken as true. The big difference with plausibility is now there's a sort of three, three-way sorting mechanism. There's specific facts, which are taken as true. There's law, which is sort of ignored for purposes of motions to dismiss, whether the complaint states a claim. And then there's this brand new category of generalized facts, you know, facts that are stated too rhetorically or in, you know, too general of terms. Um, and the court also refuses to credit those. That is a totally new um, category of allegation that never existed before. And why that matters is if a plaintiff doesn't have the specifics, um, let's say, again, if with a discrimination complaint, a lot of times we don't know the specifics of what would show a discriminatory mindset. Obviously, we can't absent, you know, absent a functional MRI, get into the head of a defendant uh, and sort of specify the nature of his or her intent. Um, and there are lots of situations where plaintiffs lack access to information um, that would be specific enough to meet the standard of a factually specific, well-pleaded allegation. So under this very first step of the plausibility test, courts are now wholesale ignoring lots of statements in a complaint that used to contribute to the complaint's viability. And then what they do is having set aside those categories of too general or too legalistic allegations, um, they then turn back to the, quote, well-pleaded specific ones. And they assess that, kind of they do a, a bit of a merits assessment. Um, if we read this, these allegations now, do they reasonably suggest that the defendant violated the law? So it's really putting up two hurdles that didn't exist before. One, ignoring a whole new set of allegations that used to be credited. And then number two, um, looking at the well-pleaded facts with an eye towards their merits uh, rather than their informational value. Well, maybe you could talk specifically about Twombly and Iqbal in relation to what the court saw as the deficiency in the way the case was pleaded? And did the plaintiffs in those cases lose for the same reasons or were the reasons or the interpretations slightly different? I think that they were slightly different. And I'll start with the Twombly case um, on everyone's um, favorite simple topic, antitrust law. Um, so what Twombly was about was consumers had sued um, telecommunications telecommunication providers under the Sherman Act. Um, they, they stated, they wished, tried to state an antitrust conspiracy claim. And the Sherman Act outlaws contracts, combinations, or conspiracies in restraint of trade or commerce. And the gravamen of the plaintiff's complaints uh, was price fixing. Um, in the plaintiff's view, the defendants had gotten together and fixed prices to be anti-competitive, to prevent good competition in the industry. So what the plaintiffs had done is they had alleged 
here's the pricing that all of these defendants are setting. Look how they're acting together. Um, you know, when, when one, one provider's prices move, the other one's price move in the same direction. And look how coordinated this appears from the outside. So they were able to allege what's called parallel conduct. Um, but what they couldn't do was say, and the defendants got together, you know, on August 3rd of 2000 and in a hotel room at this place in this date, and they said this to each other, which formed an agreement, right? Plaintiffs couldn't do that. They would, they would have no way of getting the information about how these defendants came to an agreement. So what they did was they tried to plead by inference, by showing through their complaint what they knew as to, to be fact, which was look at how these defendants are acting in concert. Here's you know the pricing parallelism that's going on. Well, the court said it wasn't enough to do what the plaintiffs did. Yes, um, the allegations of the parallel conduct, you know how the defendants were acting in tandem with each other, um, that was specific. But the plaintiffs' complaint did not reasonably suggest that that acting in tandem was the product of a conspiracy uh, rather than just voluntary independent activity that had no actual coordination whatsoever. And so the court said it's conclusory for you to simply assert a conspiracy in a contract by itself, you know, even if you've got these specific parallel conduct allegations, because, you know, we just can't tell from this if what the defendants were doing was the result of their own behavior, which is very normal, this is, you know, you allege what is very typical behavior, even absent a conspiracy, you know, or, you know, whether in fact they did engage in some kind of agreement. And so absent some allegations that the court said would, quote, nudge over the line towards suggesting an actual coordinated conspiracy, the plaintiffs were out of luck. So, so that was the Twombly case. And Iqbal picked up on this idea of a conclusory allegation. Iqbal, however, was a very different case. It was a uh, constitutional discrimination case that the plaintiff, Mr. Iqbal, had filed against uh, many government officials, including uh, then Attorney General John Ashcroft and the director of the FBI, Robert Mueller. And um, what he alleged in his complaint is that he was detained and confined um, along with many, many Arab Muslim men in very restrictive, um, unconstitutional conditions of confinement, um, being suspected of terrorist activity following 9-11. And so the gravamen of his complaint was religious and race and national origin discrimination, that he and others were targeted for this really terrible particular type of confinement based on race, religion, and national origin. And he alleged that Ashcroft and Mueller were part of this. Now, a lot like the plaintiffs in Twombly, he didn't have security clearance, much less discovery, to really figure out how did Ashcroft and Mueller um, participate in this scheme? How deeply involved were they? What exactly was their mindset? So he pled what he knew and could ethically plead, uh, which was that they were both part of making the detention policy. And then, of course, he alleged that policy was implemented on the ground by um, subordinates, and he was quite specific about what the subordinates did um, in terms of targeting based on race, religion, and national origin. But other than saying that Ashcroft was the principal architect of the policy 
and Mueller was instrumental in implementing it. He just didn't have the information to say, you know, sort of the specifics that would have supported those rhetorical characterizations. Now, I think that's a different problem than Twombly. Um, the court in Iqbal took issue, um, not just with Iqbal's allegation asserting that these two defendants um, had a discriminatory mindset, you know, that they that knew what they were doing was discriminatory and they were aware that their subordinates were implementing this in a discriminatory way. And, you know, they continued um, supporting it or, and or turning a blind eye. I mean, that was pled in a fairly conclusive way, conclusory way. But when Iqbal is saying that Ashcroft is the principal architect, he's saying something very um, factual. He's, he's not alleging some kind of legal violation right there in that sentence. He's saying, here's how Ashcroft was involved. Here's his level of responsibility. And the same thing with Mueller. The rhetorical word instrumental is just a fancy way of saying he was really important, <laughs> really important to this policy. And so the court actually refused Iqbal to credit those allegations of principal architect and instrumental. And the court slid that into that brand new allegation tier of conclusory facts. That tier did not exist in Twombly. Um, Twombly made a distinction between fact-specific allegations and legal conclusions. Um, here, uh, Iqbal carved out this whole other tier of things to be ignored, um, facts that are too general or uh, facts that are too rhetorical. And so I think that's a different pleading problem. That's one, you know, certainly both the Twombly and Iqbal plaintiffs lacked access to information that would have permitted them to be more specific. But Iqbal was in fact more specific um, and as specific as he could be under ethical constraints. And so I think, you know, both the cases and the pleading problem were different. And then the last thing Iqbal did um, was, you know, to create a two-step analysis. Um, if you look at Twombly, it's really it doesn't divide plausibility into steps. It just, you know, says you've got to plot, you know, plead allegations that reasonably suggest illegality, um, and, and then it refused to credit legal assertions. But Iqbal kind of turned that into this two-step deal where you first do the sorting, including the conclusory factual allegations. And then uh, with those all set aside, you do the plausibility analysis. And so it seems to me and to many people that Iqbal injected this kind of additional set of hurdles that Twombly didn't necessarily require uh, to be erected. A lot of people see Iqbal and Twombly as really dramatically increasing the burden on plaintiffs to get into court and to stay into court long enough to get discovery. Uh, I, I want to get to your work in, on this area as quickly as we can, but I wonder if you could just talk briefly about how courts have implemented these new standards and how other scholars have tried to explain, rationalize, or criticize this new framework. Yes. And so courts' uh, reactions have been really all over the place. And that, in my view, is the biggest problem with plausibility and particularly the first step, which is really what my article is about. Um, it, it lacks predictability. It lacks guidance. And so what you see a lot of courts doing is just kind of ignoring um, the two-step analysis. And you know, with respect to complaints that would 
that would have met the two-step analysis had the court gone through it. The court just sort of reaches the conclusion that the plaintiff states a claim that there's enough fact-specific allegations, but doesn't sort of go through the whole rigmarole. Um, so there's some of that. Uh, but then there are there are certainly um, a significant number of cases in which you can really point to the difference uh, between the notice pleading standard and the plausibility standard and how that changes the result of case. Um, I will say that there have been many empirical studies that have been done, and they're not entirely conclusive. It's sort of very hard to study uh, the exact effects of this standard. Um, so that I think the you know the jury's a little bit out on the empirics on it. Uh, but I'll just give you an example of a complaint that would have definitely survived under notice pleading that did not survive under plausibility. Um, and that was a case in which a prison inmate was uh, bringing an equal protection claim against a prison. And his, uh, the gravamen of his claim was that the prison was providing uh, safe dormitories for white inmates and unsafe dormitories for black inmates. And he said that in the complaint. Uh, you know, he, he began by saying, you know, equal protection claim, uh, blacks are treated uh, inferior, in an inferior manner to whites, and specifically whites are put in safe dorms and blacks are put in dangerous dorms. And under notice pleading, that would most definitely have been sufficient, right? The defendant prison has a very clear sense of the accusations against it. I'm accused of race discrimination in housing and specifically dangerous versus safe housing. That's quite a lot to go on. But under the plausibility standard, this particular court said, well, you know, it's conclusory to simply assert this difference in housing conditions. You're being too general. Um, we need to know, you know, what were the housing conditions that the white inmates had and how did they compare to the black inmates? And because those allegations were not in the complaint, the court said this was an insufficient equal protection claim. And you can see the absurdity of that. Um, so not only would the plaintiff have no legal right before discovery, to find out exactly how the white inmates, uh, what were the conditions of, you know, their dorms, um, you know, no, per he couldn't have had personal knowledge based on that. And secondly, that was sort of the whole point of his discrimination claim is, you know, he, he was discriminated against by being relegated to the unsafe housing. So how in the world was he ever to know um, what was really specifically going on in the white housing such that he could be much more specific. Um, I think he was being as specific as he could be under the ethical constraints of pleading. And so that's just an example of, you know, a really egregious result. And then the other thing I'll say is um, there are also a number of cases um, that I can't necessarily say have egregious results, but that have inconsistent results that have interpreted similar sets of allegations in very different ways. Um, and so in order to state a certain claim, some courts have said, you know, subset, you know, set of fact A is sufficient. And the same court would look at those same set of allegations and say, no, in my view, that's just too general. So inconsistency is, I think, probably the biggest problem that um, Iqbal has bred with its variety of plausibility. Well, so how have other scholars approached this problem? You know, what kinds of observations have they made as a way of rationalizing or helping courts understand how to maybe reduce or eliminate some of that uncertainty? And what kind of criticisms have they made of the framework writ large? 
Well, certainly one advantage I have in writing uh, uh, quite a number of years after the decisions is I've been able to read all of the scholarship um, that these decisions have read. And indeed, there have been many, many different approaches. Um, just from the highest level, you know, there are scholars that uh, really dislike uh, Iqbal and the plausibility test. There are scholars that have seen it as a, a welcome return to um, you know, perhaps not code pleading, but a sensible uh, take on, you know, stopping suits that are clearly frivolous, that are strike suits that are meant to just extract settlements. So there, there's that brand of scholars that some call Iqbal apologists. Um, so, you know, there are those camps. And then there are some scholars who think eh, it's really no big deal. If you really dive deep or dig down into what plausibility is doing, it's really not all that different. Um, so I would say there's the like camp, the dislike camp, and the neutral camp. Now, um, I'm in the dislike camp, uh, but within that camp, there are many strains. Um, and those strains, I would say, take two different basic approaches. Some strains just take issue with the plausibility test as a whole or with the second step, um, that step that sort of looks at the merits assessment. You know, have you reasonably suggested a legal violation here? And so there are a lot of scholars who take aim at that. And then there are scholars who take aim at what I'm taking aim at, which is the first step, the sorting step. Um, and so in my article, I do talk about several different approaches scholars have taken critically to that first step. And, you know, they range from, for example, um, an approach that acts as, uh, asks lexicographers to please come up with a better legal definition. There's, a, in fact, a plea to Brian Garner uh, in one of these articles that says, help us, help us know what plausibility means or what conclusory means, uh, because that's the sticking point. What is conclusory? What is it who can tell if something is too general? So that approach is very definitional, looks to um, dictionaries, and also adds to that sort of a look at, well, let's look at what we know from precedent. And so, as I said, notice pleading did use the word conclusory, but it was used in a different way. And so that scholar wants to try to extract whatever he can you know, from that prior precedent and try to say, okay, well, if this is what conclusory meant in notice pleading, we can reason by analogy to what it probably means here. So that's one approach. Um, other approaches um, sort of take have different takes on how to define um, factual specificity. And so we have, uh, for example, Adam Steinman's transactional approach. And what he's doing there is he's taking a legal concept that's very commonly understood in civil procedure transaction. That word is in the rules a lot of places. It governs a lot of different things. And he says, let's see if the complaint pleads a transaction, um, a narrative that even if there are some conclusory aspects of it, we can really tell the real world events that are being pled. And if the complaint does that, that's enough. Um, so he's kind of working within the conclusory system and saying, here's how we can uh, interpret that. Uh, then there are other scholars who say, well, you know, the transactional approach is helpful, but, you know, really what we need to do is just completely overrule. <laughs> we need to overrule Iqbal. This whole conclusory thing has no basis in precedent. It's back to code pleading. That's, you know, against what the rules, um, you know, have said pleading is supposed to be about. So we just need to do away with it. And then a final approach I'll mention, which I found really interesting, um, but I don't agree with, is uh, what I call a textual interpretive approach. So that approach um, treats pleading more like a statute um, and brings to bear 
the many tools of statutory interpretation to the discipline of pleading interpretation. Um, I think the issue, you know, the good part about that is, wow, we have tools. This is great. Um, I think the problem with the lexical approach, the transactional approach, and others like that that try to you know, put contours around conclusory based on legal theory is that there's still instability. There's still a lack of definitive predictability to that. And with statutory interpretation, which is not a perfect art or science, um, at least we have tools. Um, the problem is complaints are not statutes. And um, the, uh, the drafters of the FRCP were really clear that what they wanted with notice pleading was to focus on the pleading as communication not as the sort of cold verbal artifact to be held up to judicial scrutiny and analyzed sort of in the manner of a statute. Um, so I think that, you know, briefly summarizes the different approaches that scholars have taken to criticizing the first prong of the plausibility test. So in your work, you suggest a sort of alternative approach using speech act theory in the kind of Austinian, Cyrillian sense as a different way of thinking about how to engage with that first um, that first step of determining whether you know you have enough specificity or too much generality and what it means to think about whether claims or allegations in a complaint or are conclusory. How do you think that's fundamentally different from some of these other approaches? How would it work and why do you think that that's potentially a more helpful way of approaching the problem? Well, speech act theory is, as you mentioned earlier, a philosophy of language. And what that philosophy tries to do, it's a descriptive method uh, for analyzing and understanding what speakers are doing with words and how listeners are understanding them. So speech act theory assesses statements from the perspective of their function. Um, what is the function of the words in this sense? Um, not semantics, you know, but what are they trying to accomplish? And then also speech act theory will say, and what communicative effect do these words have on the listener? Um, how is the listener probably understanding them? How is the listener probably grasping them? So it's a very functional analysis. And that's really quite different from all of the approaches that I discussed that the um, that legal theory scholars have taken, um, which is not really a functional approach, but rather a definitional approach. Um, a, you know, some effort to pin down what is the meaning of conclusory, and then let's try to you know do a better job sorting based on that definition, or you know let's use statutory interpretation or contract interpretation techniques to understand the meaning of words in a complaint. But speech act theory is a look at, well, what did the plaintiff mean to say? And um, how is the defendant likely to grasp that meaning, which fits beautifully um, with the original concept of pleading under the federal rules of civil procedure. Um, Charles Clark, who is the original reporter um, and you know part of the drafting team, um, was very big on this idea of, you know, this is a conversation. We, we pay attention to what the, the plaintiff is trying to get across, and we try to give them the benefit of uh, all reasonable intendments, as Clark said when he was a judge, actually judging motions to dismiss. And so he, even in his jurisprudence, was really clear that the focal point should be on what is meant by the words in the complaint. Uh, now, I think a potential criticism to that approach would be, well, aren't we just abandoning all the standards? You know, plaint if plaintiffs can 
you know, be given the benefit of um, whatever they mean to say, <laughs> isn't that the same as just letting all the complaints through? And the answer to that is no, because speech act theory does something similar to statutory interpretation. And that is it has tools. It has analytical um, tools and frameworks for actually digging down into what is the meaning of this statement? What function is it serving? So as an example, if we think about the Iqbal complaint um, and we think about the function of the sentence, uh, John Ashcroft was the principal architect of the detention policy. We can see that that is an effort by the plaintiff. And again, this would be using the tools of speech act theory um, to represent uh, what happened, historical facts, past events. Here's what Ashcroft uh, the level of his responsibility when that policy was first written and implemented. And the same thing with Mueller being instrumental. It's an effort to represent what was once reality. It is not an effort to do what under notice pleading was you know, something to be ignored, which is to assign uh, responsibility or to accuse. Certainly, when Iqbal alleged that, therefore, Ashcroft and Mueller discriminated based on race, religion, and national origin, that was a form of accusation. Um, again, Speech Act theory tools, you go through the framework and the analysis, and you, you can reach that result with the tools. And you can see the, compl- the plaintiff can't really manipulate this. You know, they're, they're going to either be trying to represent things that are happening in the world or have happened. Or they're going to have sentences that try to accuse and get the court to change, you know, the legal status and and make determinations. Um, And so that is, I think, the advantage of speech act theory that right now the legal theory approaches are not providing, which is tools that can be analytically used to judge what notice pleading was meant to judge. And that is, you know, what is the complaint meaning to say and how is the defendant grasping it? Well, so I found that that your application of speech act theory in this context is really helpful in identifying why the the concept of conclusoriness was not a terribly helpful concept and providing an alternative way of thinking about the interpretation of the complaint. I did feel like it sort of in a way was sort of isolating the uh the plausibility element and setting it to the side is is that right i mean do you think this solves the plausibility problem as well or is that a separate problem uh so you mean the the second step uh where we sort of look at what's left over and we decide hey does this suggest that the defendant violated the law yeah yeah so no i didn't address that in my article and 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 that's a separate problem um and certainly you know i could write <laughs> i could write about that problem but I, I didn't think that speech act theory necessarily lent itself quite as well to that problem because at that point in the second step, we're sort of done with the sorting and figuring out, you know, what have the allegations said and what have they not said. And then it's sort of the judge using, you know, laws substantive or what we call what I call in my article constitutive rules say, OK, discrimination law requires these certain elements and now that we've sorted the well-pleaded allegations and put them into a little pile, uh, do those match up with the elements of a constitutional discrimination claim in a way that reasonably suggests something illegal happened? And my position certainly is that that is a you know more of a merits assessment than what notice pleading is is meant to have happen at the pleading stage. And I I, I think it's wrong normatively. Um, 
but it is not something that I address in the piece uh, because I, I don't necessarily think that, that speech act theory informs that, that aspect of the analysis. Yeah, but I mean, it does seem to me that thinking about how to do the sorting more effectively and more intentionally helps at least frame the plausibility question in a way that we can talk about it better. I think that's right. And, and that was the goal. The goal was to try to think of a way to, you know, be, I mean, in a very practical sense, you know, give judges and litigants and scholars something to work with that was better than what was already out there, uh, you know, for trying to say, hey, would this sentence be well pleaded or would it be conclusory? You know, let's let's give us some, some meat to that. Um, but also, yes, to frame the plausibility inquiry in a way that even if we are doing more of a merits assessment, at least we're not ignoring large swaths of allegations that are meant to represent historical facts um, and should be considered in the assessment of whether there's this reasonable suggestion of illegality. Well, Sue, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your paper. I thought it was a really kind of clever and provocative look at uh, how we can do something really technical like interpreting notice pleading more effectively. And uh, uh, I congratulate you on it. Thank you so much, Brian. It was a pleasure to be here. I really appreciated it. Belongs to you. No one else.